0: You are listening to the Venue podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at South Christ Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Man, it's good to to be in worship with you to hear everyone singing, excited to dive into God's word this morning. Hey, don't you love it when you when you come across some unexpected Beauty. So, for example, uh, like if you, you travel to New Mexico, I remember on the way the first time we went to Carlsbad Caverns, we were driving there, and I'm thinking, we are literally in the middle of nowhere, right? And then you get to Carlsbad Caverns, and you go down in there, and it's, it's beautiful. It's stunning. So, some of y'all have been there before? It's amazing. It's definitely worth the trip if you've not been there. Um, I think about unexpected beauty and people, and I was one of these. When you first come to Lubbock, and uh, you have a, a good old dirt storm, right? And it's really ugly, it's really nasty, but typically, it's not always, but typically what happens the evening after a dirt storm? The sunset is stunning, right? So you've had this, this ugly day, it's gross, like dirt's in your teeth and everything, and at the end of the evening, end of the day, you have a beautiful sunset, this unexpected beauty. Um, some of you, you met your spouse in an unexpected way, right? Maybe, I always love it when I was working with college students and uh, guys who did not know Christ and have been invited to church uh, by someone that actually came, and they'd be like, man, there's some pretty girls at church. I didn't know that was gonna happen. <laughs> it was this, une- they were like, this is unexpected beauty. Um, sometimes you find unexpected beauty at a restaurant when you go to a little hole-in-the-wall place and you- it ends up being amazing food. Unexpected beauty. Beauty. Sometimes uh, when we're reading the Bible, we're looking for beauty and it, it, you're not always able to find it right off the bat. I think one of those places that you don't expect to see beauty very often is in, in the Old Testament law book. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Often when you, when you open your Bible, you're like, oh, I, I don't think I've actually ever touched those pages, Right. When you look at, X, especially Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I always think, when I think about those books, like often people don't know much about them. A few like corny, um, and I'm one of these, so like I'm, I can make fun of them, but like uh, guys that go to Bible college and I think of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's like a good place to, to get pickup lines. Like, well, what's up girl? I was reading the book of Numbers and I realized I didn't have yours, right? <laughs> um, super cheesy, right? That's why Bible college is dangerous. Um, <laughs> but here's the question I want us to consider this morning. How do Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy help us encounter the beauty of Christ? I think so often it would be easy, or we would admit that, man, we just kind of skip over those books. I was laughing. There's the, We've got the two different reading plans going on right now. The of reading through all of scripture in the year of one is uh for uh breath and that's really reading all of it and you're reading week by week and then the other one is depth so reading like 10 chapters a week and uh i was talking to one of our pastors this morning ken carter and he was like you know technically we're supposed to be starting leviticus this week he was like I'm enjoying about the middle of Genesis. The middle of Genesis is really nice. Um, It's easy to get behind in reading, especially when you get to Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It can feel burdensome. It can feel tedious. It can feel like drudgery. But still, believe it or not, these books, while in and of themselves they're amazing and we could spend weeks just talking about these books, how to read them on their own, the reality is these books also help us encounter the beauty of Christ. They point us to Jesus. How in the world do they do that? So, what it's not, what it's not, is that Jesus is playing hide and go seek in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Like you read, he's like, there he is. Like that's not how. It's not peekaboo. It's not a game of where's Waldo. Like where's Jesus? Like that's that's not how it works in these books. Rather, these books really speak of. Uh, again, there's more than this, but just we, we only have so much time today, but so we'll focus on one thing. These books speak of three different people that hold different offices. These were offices anointed by God to serve God's people. And what you see in the, if you read through these books is that the people, and again, I'm holding you in suspense. I'll tell you who they are in a second. These people who held those offices, they, their um, ability to carry those roles out, those offices out that were ordained and anointed by God, they were tainted because of sin and they were temporary. What you see in the New Testament is that Jesus fulfills all of those anointed offices, but he fulfilled them perfectly and with permanence, meaning the offices that we're gonna look at, the the roles that we're gonna look at, Jesus fulfills them forever, and he does it and has done it perfectly. So what are those offices? How do these books point us to the beauty of Jesus? How do they help us encounter Christ? Well, we're going to begin. We're going to begin out of order just to throw you off. We're going to begin by looking at the book of Deuteronomy. So if you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Again, don't be embarrassed if as you're flipping, you realize you've never touched these pages. I'm not going to judge you. Deuteronomy chapter 18. How do these three offices help us encounter and give us a glimpse of Jesus that leads us to delight in Jesus? So a a little context for the book of Deuteronomy, we'll jump in in chapter 18 here in just a second. But it it explains a lot of God's law, had some narrative. Um, But in chapter 18, Moses is speaking. So Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and he begins to talk about a prophet. A prophet, their primary role was to reveal God to the people. Their their primary role, hey, is my mic cutting in and out? No? just right there. Where's walled up skins, right? Um, Their primary role was to reveal God and God's word to the people, to God's people, to Israel. That said, look at verse 15 of chapter 18. Moses speaking, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. So hold your finger right there. Don't turn. But back in Exodus chapter 20, God's giving the law and the they see the lightning on. The mountain and they hear the trumpets and the thunder and the earth shake and the people literally are like Moses you can talk to us if God talks to us face to face we're gonna die can you please speak on God's behalf so this is what's going on here he's saying a prophet has been given to speak in a way you can understand and not just fall flat dead on your face but actually hear from God and understand it back to verse 17 and the Lord said to me they are right in what they have spoken I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require, require it of him. So in some sense, Moses is speaking of, of Multiple prophets, we'll see down later in this verse, as we're gonna come to in a second. He's speaking of multiple prophets that will come, but ultimately, this is a safe place to say Sunday school answers, you guys got this. Ultimately, who was Moses speaking of? You guys are really smart, okay? Even though you didn't go to Bible college. Yeah, he's speaking of Jesus as the ultimate prophet. You're like, that seems like quite the jump. Where'd that come from? Okay, you don't have to turn there, because I want you to be able to write this down. Write down Acts 3, 22 through 23, Acts 3, 22 through 23. In that passage, I believe it's Peter is preaching. I'll double check myself. Yes, Peter is preaching. He's, he's speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem, and he's trying to preach the gospel to them. He's talking about Jesus, and he basically summarizes that they were needed to turn and repent, turn to Jesus, because Jesus was the prophet that Moses was speaking of in Deuteronomy 18. So Peter, who walked with Jesus, he's preaching. He says, Jesus is the ultimate prophet that Moses was speaking of. He is the ultimate revelation of God. Now, if you're like, now, how can we still be sure Jesus, prophet, what's the connection? Look at verse 20, still in Deuteronomy 18 with me. Verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, this is, the word, this is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Now again, you don't have to turn there because I want you to write it down. Mark chapter eight, write down Mark eight. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is talking about the call to come and die, and he tells his disciples that he is going to be given up to the chief priests, the leaders of, of Israel, that he would be beaten and crucified, and three days later that he would rise again. That's a prophecy. He was saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be arrested, beaten, killed, and three days later I'm gonna rise again. Is that a bold prophecy? Yes. So if it didn't happen, if it did not come true, according to Deuteronomy 18, the people should ignore it. If Jesus didn't die and rise again, the people should say, man, he was a false prophet. He wasn't actually revealing the word of God. Question, did Jesus die on the cross and three days later rise again? Absolutely yes and amen. He is the ultimate great prophet. He is the one that Moses ultimately was speaking of. So here's the first point I want you to see and we'll unpack it a little bit. Deuteronomy helps us encounter the beauty of Christ by pointing to him as our prophet. Deuteronomy helps us encounter the beauty of Christ by pointing to him as our prophet prophet so we get a glimpse of him in deuteronomy 18 here's the thing we get the glimpse of him not just as oh yeah jesus but that he is our prophet he is the one who reveals god to us the ultimate word of god i'll say it one more time as you're writing so i can help you deuteronomy helps us encounter the beauty of christ by pointing to him as our prophet new testament passages that back this up Again, you don't have to turn there. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Then in John 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the word. Who's he talking about there? Jesus. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jump to verse 14 of John one. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I love what Thomas Nettles, he's a theologian, says, Jesus Christ came as the perfect prophet, so the perfect revealer of God, because he is the very word of God himself. Who better to reveal God than God, right? That's how Jesus came, as our prophet. Now you could be sitting there and you're like, "Uh, okay, I think that makes sense, but am I supposed to get fired up about that? Like, am I supposed to be excited that Jesus is our prophet? I think it's a fair question. Uh, Let me help you answer that a little bit. You, You should know, just to give credit where credit's due, Where we're headed this morning with looking at Jesus in these three offices was kind of popularized by uh, the reformer John Calvin in the 16th century. Listen to what he said. Our hearts are perpetual idol factories. We remain in this ignorance and idolatry unless we are rescued by the true prophet. Think about it. an, An idol is something you worship or love or think about or pursue more than God. So he says, our our hearts are perpetual idol factories. We're always producing this other idol, this other thing that we wanna love or pursue or worship or think about more than God. When you do that, scripture teaches us, and we know by experience, that leads to shame and guilt and ultimately slavery. Jesus as the prophet, John 1 says that he's the light of the world. So as a prophet, they come and shine light on things so you can see. Without Jesus as the prophet, as the ultimate revealer of God's word, we are left to to grope in the dark and try to find meaning and satisfaction in life, things that fulfill us, things that will give us purpose, things that will give us pleasure. And we always find the wrong thing apart from Christ. We always end up worshiping or pursuing something other than God. But Jesus came as the light of the world To shine the light really ultimately on himself and say, there's nothing bigger or better than me. Quit pursuing those foolish idols, which are not going to satisfy you, and pursue me, the author and perfecter of your faith. The one who's actually going to give you life and give you purpose and give you pleasure and give you you hope and fulfillment. Turn to me. See, if Jesus was not our prophet, if he did not perfectly reveal God, we would still be left in the dark, hopeless without him. He is the perfect revealer of God. He is the perfect word of God. So because he's the prophet, we don't have to look to the world, the news, or social media to try to understand God or ourselves. Amen. (laughs) I don't have to look out there to try to find satisfaction. I can look to Christ. The ultimate prophet, he tells us, this is who God is, this is what he's like, this is who you are, and I'm the only one that will satisfy you. Deuteronomy helps us encounter the the beauty of Christ by pointing to him as our prophet. Now, if we stopped there, if Jesus was just our prophet, just the ultimate prophet, it would be kind of like this. If that was it, if that was the only role he had, it'd be like Jesus was like, I've come and I've performed all these miracles. I've done many wonderful things to tell you. You're all evil. There's no hope. That's it. (laughs) He's not just a prophet. It doesn't just stop. By the way, he doesn't talk like that, okay? (laughs) If he was just a prophet, maybe he would, I don't know. But that's not all he says. So let's look to the book of Leviticus for our second office we're gonna encounter. Turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Y'all still with me? Leviticus 16. 16, not 16. (laughs) So a little bit of context as you're turning there. In the the book of Leviticus, you hear all these laws and you hear about the priests and how the priests were to perform with God's people. And the priests really represented the to God. So the priest acted as a mediator between God and man. So they, they kind of stood in the gap and were to represent the people to God. Now in Leviticus 16, we read about the day of atonement where what would happen is the high priest, so in this case, Aaron, so the, like the, the highest level of priest who was to represent the people to God, he would first make a sacrifice for himself because he was a sinner. He was a human. And then he would make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. So jump into verse 15 with me. Chapter 16, verse 15, talking about the high priest. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanlinesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their unclean, I can't say it again, uncleanlinesses. I I can't say it now. (laughs) Uncleanlinesses, there we go. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness, I'm just going to say it that way, of the people of Israel. And when he he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So that's kind of (laughs) weird, but super important. So the high priest, uh, summarizing very quickly here, makes sacrifice for himself. Then he sacrifices a goat on behalf or for the people and sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. And this represents propitiation. Tony talked about this last week, I think it was, right? Yes, he did. Um, Propitiation. So the appeasement of God's wrath. So to cover, to satisfy God's wrath. But then there was another picture. They would go, the high priest would lay his hands over the other goat. This is where we get our word scapegoat, right? Put his hands over that goat, representing all of the sins, all the iniquities of the people. The goat represents taking on that sin. And then They would say, get on out of here and take that goat out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Super weird, but super awesome. (laughs) Listen to the words of Alistair Begg. He, uh, and I can't think of the other guy's name. He and another guy wrote a book called Name Above Names, Name Above All Names, incredibly helpful in looking at what we're looking at this morning. But listen to what he says about what we just read. This presents a vivid illustration of the two aspects of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. Jesus shed his own blood as the high priest who gave himself on the cross as the final sacrifice for our sins. But on the cross, he has also taken through the power of the spirit into the no man's land between heaven and earth. In that lonely wilderness where he bore our sins, he experienced an indescribable sense of alienation from God. He was rejected by man and tasted death as the wages of our sin and as the curse of God. Jesus went into the presence of God as if he were the only sinner in the world enduring the wrath of God. Entering into the unspeakable black hole of desolation, he cried out, my God, my God, why am I forsaken by you? There in the darkness, he became both the sacrifice and the scapegoat for our sins. His blood shed for us, sets guilty consciences free and brings us peace with God. Amen. Here's the second truth we see. The book of Leviticus helps us encounter the beauty of Christ by pointing to him as our high priest, as our priest. The book of Leviticus, helps us encounter the beauty of Christ by pointing to him as our high priest. And if you're like, Brandon, again, I gotta ask, nowhere does it mention the name of Jesus in Leviticus in that passage. How can we be sure about that is about Jesus? It's really simple with Leviticus. Almost the entire book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is the true and better, greater high priest. I love, you don't have to turn there. I'd love for you to write it down. Listen to how the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus as our high priest. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 says, since therefore, again, it's Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, if you wanna write it down. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, He delivers us from bondage to sin and Satan. And he delivers us from the wrath of God. Listen to the words from Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's what a priest does nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. No, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus, unlike the priests of the Old Testament, He's not every day coming in, got to make a sacrifice. No, he brought his own flesh and blood as the ultimate sacrifice. And it's a one and done forever sacrifice to cover the guilt and the shame and the punishment of your sin. He wiped it out with one perfect sacrifice. That's the kind of high priest he is. One more I want to read to you, Hebrews 7, 24 through 25. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So you, you can't kill Jesus. They tried that. He said, what's up, fool? I'll get back up three days later. You can't kill him. You can't knock him down. Hebrews says he's an indestructible life. Consequently, so because he lives forever and he holds his priesthood permanently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So here's what's really cool. Not only is he this perfect priest who's made put an end to your sin forever. It's permanently covered and forgiven and washed away and cleansed. Not only that, but he prays for you. Jesus, if you're a Christian, prays for you. Jesus, right now, is praying for you if you're a Christian. That might should give you chills. <laughs> Louis Burkhoff, he wrote a systematic uh, theology book, in 1930s, listen to what he says about that idea. It is a consoling thought that Christ as our high priest is praying for us, praying for us. Even when we are negligent, in our prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. He prays for our protection against the dangers of which we're not even aware and against the enemies which threaten us that we don't even notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. When you're struggling with that temptation and fighting, you're not alone. Jesus is praying for you. He is your great High priest. Yeah. Thank you. I almost worth saying, this is a, we're doing a lot of this today, right? Like, I, I feel like my brain has not work this hard in a long time, which maybe says something about me. But, um, but what starts here should impact here right? Maybe we're, maybe we're wrestling with some things we haven't thought about before, but ultimately these truths should impact your heart. Let me help you maybe unpack that a little bit. See, apart from Christ, all of us, let me restate that. Every human being, we we have this mindset. We're going to try to earn God's favor. We're going to try to earn relationship with him, earn favor with him. It's kind of like, I would compare that to trying to some of you all done this like I have, and you've gone off trail at Palmdira Canyon, whatever you're not supposed to. You've tried to climb up those dirt canyon walls, right? And often, when you try to get up in those little crevices and climb up, all that happens is you take a few steps and you slide back down, and you just get more dirty. <laughs> and you just slide, my friend Matty Grayson. I did that one time on a trip, and we we would climb and just fall back down, get more dirty. Apart from the amazing, beautiful, wonderful, love and gracious, perfect priestly work of Christ on the cross. That's all we're left to. It's just, I want a I relationship, relationship with God. I want to I earn something. I want him to love me. I want to prove something. And we just get more dirty and we just fall further away from him. You can't be good enough to have a relationship with God. Good people don't go to heaven. People who have the high priest, king, Jesus, those people go to heaven. See, King Jesus, Priest Jesus, get ahead of myself. (laughs) Bet you can't guess what the next office is, by the way. (laughs) Priest Jesus came down that dirty canyon wall to earth itself and says, hey, you can't fix yourself. You can't clean yourself up, but I can save you. He brings us up into a relationship with him. There's no sliding back down into that canyon because you're secured by his perfect, precious blood. So, what does that mean? As a believer, you you can rest. You can get off the hamster wheel of religion. Gotta please God, gotta earn something, gotta prove something. Jesus, like, "I, I died for that. Would you just chill out? You can rest. It means if you don't know Christ, you can turn from that striving and turn to resting in salvation, faith in Christ. Trust his finished work for you. It means because he's our, our high priest, we can go confidently to him. Hebrews says that we, because we have such a great price, high priest who's shown his mercy, we go to the throne boldly. So we don't go into God's presence like, ah, can we talk? No, you can come boldly because of his finished work for you. He's not like on this off and on relationship with you or like he he woke up on the bad, the wrong side of the bed, so now he's mad at you. No, he loves you and it's secure and perfected in his finished work for you, amen? Not what you can do. Some of you may would say, but my past is so messed up. My present is so messed up. There's no way God could forgive me. Jesus is like, do you not think I knew what I was doing on the cross? To quote Matt Chandler, Jesus was fully aware of the trash he was purchasing on the cross (laughs) and he still paid for it. He loves you deeply in spite of your sin. The cross makes way for you to have relationship with him. Don't draw lines where Jesus doesn't. Well, I don't think Jesus will pass that. He's like, are you kidding me? Watch me. (laughs) Some of you have this, and I struggle with this. You have this mindset. I know Jesus, we're okay right now, but I think in the future, when I figure some things out, when I get things in order, then Jesus will love me more. Jesus does not love some future version of yourself. He loves you right now. Not because, wow, am I that good? No, because of the blood of the cross. <laughs> he loves you right now. Not some future version of yourself. There's an incredible book, I'm not done with it yet, but Dane Ortland wrote, Richard uh, pointed me to it, appreciate that, called Gentle and Lowly. And he asked the question, who is Christ in the midst of that sin, your sin? Not when you conquer it, sorry, not when you conquer it, but in the midst. So we tend to think of like, yeah, when we're doing good, like man, Jesus is my priest, he, he saved me, he reconciled me to have this relationship with God. But then when we're living in sin, we're like, oh, I don't, I don't know, I think he's mad at me. He's still the same guy, <laughs> He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still your great high priest, not just in the future when you get it together, not in the past when you were doing better. Right now, you are held perfectly in his presence because of his finished work on the cross. Jesus is your great high priest. And the book of Leviticus pushes us, points us to him. Now, if we stopped there, if we stopped at, well, he's prophet, he's priest, but if we were... We would still be left a little bit wandering, a little bit hopeless, and a little bit insecure, maybe left to our own devices, our own willpower. We got one more to check out very, very quickly as I'm watching the clock. Turn to the book of Numbers. It's it's worth it's useful, useful for more than just pickup lines. Numbers 24. Thanks, Zach. (laughs) What a guy. Numbers twenty four. Really quick context. Uh, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna move a little faster than I like to here, but it's just kind of what, what we got this morning. Numbers twenty four. Some context. Some of y'all know this story because you got Balaam and Balaam's donkey a talking <laughs> talking <laughs> a talking donkey, right? This is why you should read the Old Testament, because some really cool stories that are true stories. And so he, Balaam's a guy has a talking donkey. Balaam was a prophet of God who was hired by uh, Balak, Balak, however you say his name. See, by the way, pastors struggle with these names too. It's okay, all right? Just, let's just be honest about it, okay? So Balak hired Balaam to prophesy against God's people. But the problem is, every time he goes to, it reminds me, I just thought, it reminds me of Liar, Liar. Every time he goes, that old Jim Carrey movie, some of y'all kids are like, what is that? Anyways, he, every time he goes to speak, he can't help but speak the truth. He can't help but speak the words of God. So he's been hired by Balak to go and curse God's people. And every time he's like, and he just gives them blessing. And Balak is like, bro, what is wrong with you? Stop it. (laughs) Quit blessing God's people. Well, then, uh, And even there's, they kind of argue about that in uh, chapter 24, you can see in verses 12 through 14 if you wanna read it later. But here's where we're gonna pick up, 24 verse 15. And he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Here's the key. Here's where you can highlight. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemy shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. We're not quite giving you the point yet, but here he's, he's talking about a king, a scepter, a ruler who will reign. He says, notice in verse 17, this is prophecy. I, I see him, but he's not here yet. He's coming, but he's not here yet. I think to be simple, I'm going to read... Um, Quick little paragraph by Philip Ryken. He's an Old Testament Testament scholar. Just talking about this passage. He says, it is an oracle from the most high, verse 16, by whom Melchizedek blessed Abraham. That was back in Genesis 14. Melchizedek is himself associated with Christ Jesus in the New Testament. This oracle promises a king in the distant future who will defeat Israel's enemies. He will crush the foreheads of Moab. It seems to anticipate David's victories. However, the promise to Abraham with the rest of scripture teaches us to see in the promise of David's throne, the promise of the Messiah whom the Gentiles will obey. Thus Balaam confirmed God's promises to Abraham and pointed to the coming Messiah, King Jesus. So here's what we need to see in the book of Numbers. It helps us encounter the beauty of Christ by pointing to him as our king. Points to him as our king. And if you're like, uh, are you sure? Like, is it really about him as a king? Yes, this is confirmed throughout the rest of scripture, just to name a few. In Psalm 2, the, the writer David speaks of a coming king who will rule and reign on the earth. John 18 Jesus is talking with Pilate and Jesus says, look, I'm not just the king of the Jews. My kingdom is not of this world. It it basically like Pilate, you got a little kingdom, man. (laughs) Emperor Rome, you got a little kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. It's bigger. It's better. Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If that's not a king, I don't know what is. Philippians 2 says that there's coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Revelation 19 says that Jesus, am not saying you should use this as an argument for tattoos, but he has a tattoo on his thigh that says he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's not just prophet. He's not just priest. Jesus is the reigning king, amen? He rules over all. See, we're familiar with <laughs> sweet sweet little baby infant Jesus right and we're familiar with kind of like maybe you wouldn't say it this way but hippie Jesus like Jesus hanging out with the disciples by the sea of Galilee and he's doing ministry under the stars and then we think about Jesus sheep Jesus dying on the cross The picture we see here in Numbers and really ultimately all throughout scripture and certainly Revelation is that Jesus is not just the sheep. He is the reigning lion of Judah who is king over all of the universe. He rules and reigns everything and everyone. And by the way, this is crazy. I don't know if you guys know this. Last last I heard, Jesus is not up for re-election this year. It's crazy. No, and actually, not anytime soon. He will reign. He does reign forever. He is the king. So what does that mean? First of all, we give our lives for the one kingdom that ultimately really matters. Yes, we love our country. I love our country. We live for a more important kingdom. That of Christ, amen? He is our king. Because he's king, it means we trust. I don't have to try to run my life. I couldn't anyways. I don't have to try to control things because he is sovereign. He is the king. If you say, well, how do I know that I can trust a king? Maybe you have authority problems. like, how can I trust this kind of king? Because he's the kind of king that died for you on the cross. He is a servant king, so you can trust him. He is prophet, he is priest, he is king. as prophet, priest, and king, he reveals, he reconciles, he rules. That's who he is. He reveals, he reconciles, he rules. You Don't try to write this down, but you could look it up later. This is from the London Baptist Confession in 1689. This number and order of offices is necessary For in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. And in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God. And in respect to our averseness and utter inability to return to God and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. He is prophet, priest, and king. Finish with this. If you're still like, okay, like, does it matter that much? If you fail to see Jesus as your prophet, you'll always have a distorted view of God. And honestly, you'll always think that God looks kind of like you and that's going to be really depressing. You always see yourself through his, sorry, if you fail to see him as prophet, you'll always see yourself through your eyes and not his eyes. Trust me, you want to see yourself through the eyes of Christ. You need to see him as your prophet. If you fail to see him as priest You'll wear yourself out trying to earn something that was freely given at the cross. And you always think that, well, I think God likes me. I think he loves me like 91% of me, but there's this like 9% that I'm hiding. Do not fail to see him as your priest. You'll be left hopeless and on this road of trying to earn God's love. And if you fail to see him as king, the reality is you won't follow him, you won't serve him. And if you don't know him as king, if you don't know him as Lord, then you don't know him as savior. To know him as Lord and savior is to know him, or to know him as savior is to know him as Lord, king of your life. He is prophet, priest, and king. That'll get you more excited the more that you learn to look not at yourself, but look at Jesus. Last quote. <laughs> it's from a Scottish minister named Robert McChain. Robert McChain. A lot of y'all may use his Bible reading plan. He said Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Let yourself. Sorry, let your soul be filled with the sense of the excellence of Christ. You know, I think if you're a believer here this morning, that's, that's really the response, that's the challenge. It's to, to begin right now, say, Jesus, help me to see you as prophet, priest, and king. And maybe more simply, Jesus, help me for every time I look at myself to take 10 glances at you to set my eyes on you because you're much more beautiful, much more powerful, much more wonderful than I am. If you're a Christian, I hope that'll be your prayer this morning. God, teach me to keep my eyes on you. If you're not a believer this morning, man, we would love to talk with you. I think Holy Spirit's on to himself, but we would love to talk with you about what it means to place your faith and trust in Christ. We'll be back in the back um, when the service is over, or even during this next song, we'll be back there. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to trust Jesus as your prophet, priest, and king, and to, to enter into his kingdom through his saving work. As the worship team comes up, I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna give you a second to pray just quietly and ask, I'm gonna ask you to ask God help you focus on him. So if you would go ahead and pray. God, we trust and ask that maybe for some of us, these, these kind of new or fresh, maybe is a better word, fresh understandings of, of who you are in terms to your creation, to, to those you have saved, Lord, that we would understand. And that understanding would lead us to delight in who you are. And God, that delight would lead us to discipline, to wanna pursue you. Lord, I ask that if, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you, that you would draw them to yourself. They would have the, the courage, the boldness to, to come and, and speak with us back at the Welcome Center, even as we sing. And Lord, I pray for believers that even in this song, we would fix our eyes on you. The revealer, the one who reconciles and the one who rules we would delight in you. It's in your name we pray, amen. So y'all would stand and sing with us. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church.